Welcome to Pure Nonfiction, the podcast covering documentary film. I'm Tom Powers, the documentary programmer for the Toronto International Film Festival and artistic director of Doc NYC. This month is the 15th anniversary since George Bush's administration convinced the American public that Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction and went to war with Iraq. On this episode, we look back on the documentary Control Room that captured the start of the war from inside the U.S. military's CENTCOM media headquarters in Doha. Three, two, one. Cue. Cue. My fellow citizens, the United Nations Security Council has not lived up to its responsibilities, so we will rise to ours. Saddam Hussein and his sons must leave Iraq within 48 hours. Their refusal to do so will result in military conflict, commenced at a time of our choosing. Filmmaker Jahan Nujem was still early in her career. As an Egyptian-American, she watched how the rising news network Al Jazeera covered the Middle East differently from the American media. Jahan got access to CENTCOM by tagging along with the media professor Abdallah Schleifer. Once inside, she and her cinematographer Hani Salama captured this conversation between the young Marine press officer Josh Rushing and Al Jazeera journalist Hassan Ibrahim. We believe that Iraq has weapons of mass destruction, that they had the will to use them against us. When? What do you mean, when? When, when did they use them against you? That they have the will to use them against us? Oh, when? I mean, do you think Saddam... When you say someone has Saddam, the will, Saddam, that's like saying... I mean, Saddam, Saddam was threatening the U.S. with weapons of mass destruction? Yes. When? That's news to me, I'm sorry. Now, he, this is, now this is news to me. Okay. When, when did Saddam threaten the U.S. with weapons of mass destruction? Oh, I, I see. I, I'm sorry, I misunderstood your question. We believe he had the will to give them the forces to use against us and... Well, go ahead. I'm just conveying to you what people are saying. They're saying that the U.S. is inventing a purpose as it goes along. At the beginning, it was weapons of mass destruction, and then the whole thing transformed into removing Saddam from power. So... Why do they think we're doing it? What do they think our motives are? No one knows. I mean, people think really? you're there. People think you're there to basically uh, control uh, the oil of Iraq, control the Iraqi uh, foreign uh, politics, uh, to control the uh, region. I won't back down off of my point when we talk about our intent in this and what we're doing. We're not here to, to to occupy an Arab land. We're not here to take their oil. We're not here. To, to kill Arabs or take mosques or any of the other myriad of reasons. That was Josh Rushing as a Marine in 2003. Today, he has a very different career. He now works for Al Jazeera English as the creator of their investigative series, Fault Lines. The best fault line stories is when we're searching out injustice. We look for stories often where people are a victim of larger systems. Stories are too complex to be reported in that way in the regular Western media. Uh, those are the kind of stories we, we really love to go after. I was curious to understand how Josh went from being a Marine flak to an investigative journalist. Last week, he came to my screening series, Stranger Than Fiction, and joined me for a conversation. Also on stage was the film's producer, Rosa Del Varela. 
She was instrumental in helping Shepherd Control Room to its 2004 premiere at the Sundance Film Festival and its later theatrical release. We recorded this in front of a live audience at New York's IFC Center. The film had just finished. I asked Josh to explain where he was in his life that led him to join the Marines. I haven't seen that in over 10 years. And um, I'm hardly recognizable. And I don't mean just in the, uh, the fact I've put on a lot of weight since then and grew a beard. Um, I just mean as a human being, I hardly recognize that kid. Um, to answer your question, 2003, so I was like 30. Uh, I joined the Marines at 17. I was enlisted for nine years, um, became an officer. Uh, I joined up a small town in Texas. What I thought I knew of the world, I now look back and realize that like the only thing I knew in the, of, of the entire world was this small town I was in and then my life as a Marine. Um, since then, I've, I've become a journalist for Al Jazeera English. Uh, I helped start it. I've been with them for 13 years now. I host a show called Fault Lines. And um, I think I've reported from something like 40 countries around the world or more. But it, it's, been, it's been a hell of a journey and just learning so much so much from then uh, that it's actually, it was far more emotional to watch that than I realized it was going to be. I wonder if you can take us back to 15 years ago when this young journalist, Jahan Nujem, started filming with you, you know, what you made of her, what the journey was like for this film to come out. It's, it's kind of an odd story. Um, Abdullah Schleifer, who's the guy in there with the goatee, the kind of tall guy, he was a professor at the American University of Cairo, uh, who had a uh, something called the Transnational Broadcasting Journal or something like that. It was like an academic journal looking at transnational news in, in the Middle East. And he asked if he could come and speak to me at Central Command because uh, Al Jazeera was, uh, I was just one of a handful of spokespeople, but Al Jazeera was actually kind of my account. And so I would be in daily contact with Al Jazeera. And um, it's the kind of request we wouldn't normally say yes to in that environment. But uh, Abdullah has a lot of contacts in the region, and he used to be with NBC News, I think, at some point as a bureau chief. And my boss, who was seen briefly in there, he was a Navy captain, which is equivalent of a colonel in other services, uh, had actually just married an NBC producer secretly right before he deployed. And so he had a connection to this kind of NBC family as Abdullah did. So he said, yeah, okay, we'll do this. And basically told me rushing, you know, talk to him. And then Abdullah said, well, I've got these guys following me around doing this, this kind of this project and, and they, they want to come as well. And it's about Al Jazeera, but they'd like to film in the space. And uh, so he said, yeah, it was easy as, as that. They were there for, I don't know how long, um, but um, I, I mean, I liked Jahan a lot and Hani a, a lot. And I was very open, you know, trying to talk to him. Um, I mean, I had no idea that it was going to become this. Like, as I remember it being introduced to me, it was like a grad school uh, assignment kind of thing. And so uh, I gave hundreds of interviews to the BBC, to Fox News, to NBC, to just everyone around. That's what I did all day, every day. As much as I liked Jahan and uh, Hani, I didn't like leave the war thinking about them. They were there for less than a week, I think, in my space. Um, 
maybe even just a couple of days that, that we actually interacted. And so I, I didn't think much about it. And um, I came back from the war. I was upset about the Al Jazeera thing, what Rumsfeld was saying about it. It wasn't true. I thought it was far more important than America understood. I thought it was a strategic mistake and how they were uh, dealing with it. And I was also upset about the way the war was sold. Can I, can I ask when you came back? Uh- so I left there um, and went to Baghdad. Um, and I was in Baghdad until mid-2003. I think I can't. I remember being in, in New York July 4th, 2003, and I flew directly here. So it was that summer. Um, and I, I was really disheartened by the, the, the way the whole thing went. It wasn't until like next February that someone called me in uh, my office. I ended up with this weird job with the Marines. It had nothing to do with this, but it was, uh, I represented the Marines in Hollywood. And so uh, it's just a bizarre thing. I went from like real war that wasn't really a real war because we were in Doha and it was like this strange made up thing to sitting on the set of like JAG in its 13th season, which also wasn't a real war and it felt odd. And, um, I got a call at my office one day that said, hey, Captain Rushing, you don't know me, but I just want to say thank you. I saw your movie at Sundance. And thanks. And I had no idea. Um, and I was like, well, either he's got the wrong guy or maybe my office supported something that made it into Sundance and they just think me as like a military advisor. And so I look, I Google my name and, and uh, Sundance up came control room. I'm like, clearly not me. I've never heard of control room. And then I start seeing all this press about this like Marine who's sympathetic to Al Jazeera. And I was like, oh shit. Um, <laughs> like that, that, that could be me. <laughs> and um, the phone rang and, and I was right. It was the Pentagon and it was a no shit situation. They were like, well, what are you doing in a movie? And I'm like, I have no idea. Let me figure it out. Um, so it, it came as a, uh, as a surprise and took my life in a surprising direction um, eventually. But uh, I, I mean, it's just become kind of the defining thing in my life in this weird way. And I'm, I'm really thankful for it. But I, I certainly didn't see it coming from, from those days. Well, let me, I want to come back uh, to that, but let me bring uh, Rosadell into the conversation. Uh, Rosadell, how did you become involved in this film? You know, Jahan and I just started talking about it. Uh, we had worked together for a long time. And then she said, I want to make this movie. But, you know, she was sitting in New York watching all these events start to unfold. And her being part Egyptian and part American, she was like, no, there's another side to the story. It's not just what CNN is telling everybody here. And her being, you know, the investigative reporter that she is, she just went down there. I mean, we sent letters to Al Jazeera. They ignored us. And, you know, they were obviously very busy and working. So through Abdullah Schaefer, um, she went down to Cairo and then made her way to Doha. And through, again, Abdullah and all his connections, the NBC really just kind of got in the door. And then they said, well, you can stay for like a week. And Jahan's like, okay, I'll take that. And then she's like, then they said that, you know, we can't really help you figure it out. You're going to have to figure it out on your own. She's like, that's fine. So she sat in the cafeteria for a long time and met Samir and met um, Hassan and um, all the other characters, that, I mean, sorry, people that you see there. Um, and um, and I stayed in New York because I was useless. I don't speak Arabic. I'm a woman. I, I was pretty young back then, too. So I stayed in New York. And Jahan just kind of, I mean, it wasn't a school project, but it kind of was just her and Hanny and filming. And we did try to find you for a long time to tell you that you're in this movie, but we couldn't find you. 
um, <laughs> at all because we didn't, I mean, it was huge government, right? And lots of military people, we couldn't find you. Um, so we went to Sundance, the next thing you know, and... Um, can, can you uh, describe the, the the nature of the production? I mean, my understanding is it was a pretty scrappy uh, production. and It was, and it was really fast. I mean, we were literally talking about this here in New York probably February, and she got on the plane, the, like, literally, like, the next week. Um, it just happened really, really fast. We didn't have funding. And so we kind of just, you know, a lot of volunteers, a lot of some of who are here. Um, and people really believed in it. People really wanted to see this come to life. And we did have some funding, but even myself, I, I didn't know anything about Al Jazeera. I'm, you know, from here prim primarily. Um, and I also thought that what CNN was telling me was pretty true. So once Jahan started sending footage back and uh, we really saw there are two sides to every story, if not three, um, people really galvanized around the project and really wanted to see it made. And, and so it was edited a lot in Egypt at first because that was just closer to where everything was happening. And then it came to New York and, um, and we were saved by, again, people who wanted to see it done. The edit center here in New York really took us in and helped us with the post-production. And then the next thing you know, we uh, applied to Sundance and got in. And um, and then, yeah, a distributor actually liked it. Magnolia bought it, and uh, they have the rights for 20 years. <laughs> in Control Room, we watch as Josh has longer dialogues with Hassan Ibrahim. Try to put yourself in the place of an average Arab viewer. The Arab viewer sitting in a coffee shop in Cairo, Damascus, Amman, uh, Khartoum, uh, Morocco. Just that simple okay. viewer, that okay, simple person. What you're saying you're not yeah. you're not talking facts. You're talking their perception. Yes. I see how it could be perceived as that. I, I, I do. But there's a, a feeling in America that there's a instability in this region. Do you hear what I'm saying though? That there's yeah, I, I do. This I do. Instability. Yeah, yeah. And so. And but they're going to the wrong place. Long. About I mean, it's the Arab-Israeli conflict. Uh, it's I why absolutely agree with yeah, you. Yeah, but why don't they want to do anything about it? They're doing nothing about it, and it's increasing the anger. If I get out of the Marine Corps and do anything, I I want to do something with 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 the Palestinian issue. I I don't think Americans are getting good information about it. I really don't. Um, but no American connects the Palestinian issue and this issue. There's, they're completely different. They might as well be on different sides of the world as far as they're concerned, but I've yet to meet anyone in, in this part of the world that sees them as, as, uh, as not the same issue. Every, everyone here sees them as the exact same thing. Misunderstanding is running across the board. When Control Room was released in summer 2004, Hassan appeared on The Daily Show. John Stewart asked about his on-screen rapport with Josh. He's a publicity uh, guy or a, a He was a PR person and now he was basically silenced. Silenced? Yeah, although he presents a very decent face of the army. And uh, he was, I mean, I covered about seven wars and he's the very first military personnel PR officer that was really engaging and humane and uh, uh, I was able to speak to him, you know, I mean... Uh, it's a compelling part of the film is, is your... He seems to bring out uh, an understanding side uh, of you to the American issues, and you seem to open his eyes a bit to uh, 
the Arab point of yes, view, and it, it's yeah. an interesting centerpiece. Yeah, it, it was really interesting, but I mean, uh, I say to the people who stopped this man from, from speaking, I mean, it's like a man who wanted to spite his wife, so he castrated himself, you know. I mean, right. this guy is good. You know? <laughs> I would say that if you want to tell the people uh, who are silencing him, uh, this is not the show to do that. They're really, uh, those people aren't watching this show. I asked Josh to explain what Hassan meant about silencing. When the movie came out, it was, it was kind of a shock uh, the, to the Pentagon. The, they got a, a lot of calls from media because it came out right around the time that Abu Ghraib was breaking. Was Abu Ghraib? Yeah. Was breaking. And um, they just, there was no one in the U.S. That, that knew that much about Al Jazeera or, or could talk about it. And then you had this movie where this like, Marine was sympathetic. And so um, I remember there were calls from like, uh, the Today Show and Terry Gross of Fresh Air, like to, to interview me, and I, I said, "Great, let's let's go on." I mean, I, all I'm going to say is, is of course we care about their perspective. Of course we want to um, engage with them, and and the Pentagon chose to say no comment. And uh, at that point, I knew I was done, and so I uh, not done because I had to be, but done because like just morally, I was, I was at the end of it, and so I resigned. Uh, my commission and uh, got out of the Marines so that I, I could eventually come out and talk not just about Al Jazeera but how the war was sold uh, and how that was disingenuous and and I did that in summer of '04 and and I, I did that for a few months before it, it was around Christmas when I got a call from uh, a guy named Paul Gibbs who was in London and saw that the movie and he said you know I saw the movie we're going to start in Al Jazeera English I think you're you're interesting one thing led to another and I ended up. Uh, with him helping to launch what's out of English today. So, uh, I mean, it sounds like you were on your own personal trajectory of, you know, rethinking what the U.S.'s involvement in Iraq was. I, I wonder how much the film coming out and being talked about, you know, pushed along that trajectory or, or influenced that trajectory. It, it certainly did. Um, but my engagement with Al Jazeera, you know, long before the film also did open my eyes to the way they see it. And then when I came back to the States and realized what people here were seeing, I was shocked. What, what really got me in trouble with the Pentagon wasn't even the movie. It was an interview I did with the Village Voice where I said something to the effect of, you know, in the U.S. everyone sees the rockets taking off and, and the American flags and the cheers. And on Al Jazeera, they're seeing where the rockets land and the tears. And there's some split there that... I think it's really dangerous for a country not to see what they're actually doing. And that didn't go over well with the Pentagon. Um, uh, rightly so, I guess. But, I mean, I'm glad I, I, I said it and I got, I got out and I kept saying it. Um, but, yeah, it, it certainly, I, I came back really disillusioned about what this thing was, was about. I mean, it's just really baby steps in what turned out to be this enormous journey on the way I see. You know, I've been back to Iraq a dozen times as a reporter. Um, I've been to Afghanistan almost many times, and then I've been um, to battlefields across Latin America and the world. And the way I see the world, the way I see war, the way I see humanity now is so radically different than the kid that was on that screen. You know, this film says so much about uh, where the media was at 15 years ago. Now you are part of the, the media uh, from the inside. I wonder where you think the, the media has gone in the past 15 years. 
It's a good question because the media at that time was in this really weird place. Like the NBC reporter, David Schuster, you see on there? He eventually ended up at Al Jazeera America, that project that lasted a couple of years as a reporter on there. But when Schuster would interview me as Lieutenant Rushing on MSNBC, which is you know the, the left-leaning of the mainstream American media, what the viewer at home would see, I, I wasn't aware of it, but I saw it later, was there was a yellow banner across the bottom of the screen that said, our hearts are with you. And the yellow banner is really significant for like bringing the troops home, that we support the troops. Our hearts are with you. It wasn't there with David, they were with me, the young troop. And um, so the media were in this place that I, I don't think they would be as comfortable. I mean, I have a lot of criticism of mainstream media here in America today, but I don't think they would be as comfortable being as... Um, just openly and blatantly supportive of military operations as they were in that very moment. Um, and the Bush administration intentionally took advantage of that. When they wanted to sell the idea of the Iraq war, they realized it was not a popular concept. And so they looked at who had credibility within the government. And the, the two shining spots they had, it wasn't Bush Cheney, it was uh, the troops. The America really supported the troops just 100%. And Colin Powell had really high approval ratings. So they came up with kind of a two-pronged strategy of high and low. Powell would take the, the high road and go through the UN and present the argument in, I think, February 4, 2003, about all the evidence. One of the most worrisome things that emerges from the thick intelligence file we have on Iraq's biological weapons is the existence of mobile production facilities used to make biological agents. Let me take you inside that intelligence file and share with you what we know from eyewitness accounts. We have first-hand descriptions of biological weapons factories on wheels and on rails. The low road were guys like me, and, and we were basically cast for the role. That I was from Texas, I spoke a certain way, I had blue eyes, I just fit the bill. And so they put me over there this, this young dad, this troop at war, risking it all, that no reporter could ask a tough question of because their hearts are with me. And that was planned. It was planned from New York that our hearts are with them, that, that goes well for ratings. And it was planned from Washington that I would be able to say things that a politician couldn't say behind a podium in DC and get away with. And so I was, I was fed lines every day. Uh, they took our military office and they put a civilian in charge of it, a guy named Jim Wilkinson. You see him in there, he's wearing a uniform, but he was actually uh, an operative straight from uh, Cheney's office of uh, White House Global Communications. He would get the messages every day from them, give them to the young troops to go out and put in front of the camera and say, you know, you don't want the, the smoking gun to be a mushroom cloud and all the things, you know, you, you probably heard me saying in there. And, and that was absolutely by design and intentional. I remember when I first saw Control Room, it made a big impression on me that there was this young man who had a, uh, a conscience uh, and that you could see, you know, some questions opening up, you know, in your dialogue with uh, with Hassan. And, uh, you know, and, and I think that I probably had a, uh, a, a stereotyped idea of, you know, of anyone who would be in that position. And I, I wonder... In your, I wonder if you keep up contacts uh, with the military, and if you think, you know, if you find other young Josh Rushings uh, out there, or if you were just an anomaly. 
that was a different time where you just had time to sit and talk with reporters. Like when every time I've gone, I've dealt with the military, it, like there's been just a real rush kind of past like those kind of guys. But the it's a weird thing that the reporters were like trapped there. And they all wanted to be in Iraq. I mean, to America, it looked like it was in Iraq and we were near the war. But you're like, I don't know, four or five hundred miles from the war there. You're just in this kind of bizarro land. And uh, we were certainly trapped on, on that base. Um, and so you found yourself trapped together and ended up talking. I mean, in a lot of ways, that, that's how I'm sitting here now is that I literally just sat down and started talking to the Al Jazeera guys. I wanted to learn Arabic. No one else on base knew it. They did. And then as I was learning Arabic from them, uh, they, like Schuster said in the movie, they had the best food. So I would sit and eat with them. At some point, we ended up with hundreds of reporters there and only about 10 of us that would, were dealing with them. And so we were overwhelmed. They said, well, let's break them up into accounts, basically. And so it's like, okay, who's going to get Fox News? Well, that's going to go to the senior officer over here. NBC is going to go to some. I'm like the junior guy in the office. It gets down to Al Jazeera. It's like the, the end of the draft, you know? And it's like, well. And the graduate student. <laughs> yeah. And they're like, well, rushing, you, you, you talk to those guys a lot. Why don't you take it? But I mean, like the sad part of that is look at how important Al Jazeera was. And yet we're, we're dumping that off on literally like the youngest junior guy in the office who knows no Arabic and has no background in the Middle East. You're going to be America's point person on Al Jazeera. That tells you how little we understood Al Jazeera. But that also is what led to me sitting here tonight with you. I would add one thing, like for you, the impression it made that I was a thoughtful young guy, right? It made that impression because they portrayed me that way in the movie, which I'm really thankful for. Because I guarantee you I said enough stuff, particularly in the front of the movie, that, that they could have played me to a completely different stereotype. And they didn't do that. And, and, and thank goodness my whole life is probably shaped around the second half of that movie, right? But it's that way uh, because they, they, they chose to show it that way. You were describing to me before, Josh, that... The first time you were invited to a screening was at the film forum when uh, the film opened, and that that time you couldn't sit through uh, through it. Yeah, yeah, uh, the, it's a weird experience. So I mean, I, they were uh, debuting the film at the film forum, and um, they invited me to to come, which was really nice. So I flew from Los Angeles, my wife and two of my best friends, and um, it's kind of a funny experience. Even goes to, to before that, we were going to do a Q and A after the show. I mean, I've never done anything like this. So I show up to the film forum, and there's a long line to get tickets for the movie. And so we're in the back of the line, and it's summer, and it's hot, and I'm like, I'm worried that we're not going to get a ticket to this movie. And I'm, I'm supposed to talk at the end of it. What am I going to do? So I, I walked. I was like, okay, guys, wait here. Save our spot in line. And I walked past 100 people who didn't know me. And as I get to the doors and I pull open the doors of the film form, what I didn't know was that the movie we, we, we were doing the, the, the Q&A after was like the 7 o'clock showing. There had been a 4 o'clock showing before that. So when I pull open the doors, that movie was they were just coming out of the cinema and they walk right into me in the lobby. And so literally on this side of the double doors, I'm like nobody. And, and, and I have no idea what's going on. I open the doors to a whole bunch of people going, you're that guy. And all of a sudden, my life changed. I was like, whoa, I didn't even know if I could get in the, the, the theater because I'm at the back of the line. And they're like, oh, no, we, we save a spot for you. Like, get your, your wife, your friends. And so we, we pile in the theater and we're sitting there. We got popcorn. And 
I've never seen myself on the screen or heard my voice or, and so there's like all that kind of awkwardness and I'm looking at it and then it's a really liberal crowd and, and back in 2004, you can imagine that crap I was saying, you know, they were like snickering and I was like, oh, I, I just, I, kept, I became really self-conscious and I, I went out of the theater and I spent the next 90 minutes standing next to the popcorn guy making small talk. So what do you do? You know, sell popcorn. Um, and then eventually the movie ended, they came and got me and escorted me in. And for a long time after that, I didn't watch it, even though, I mean, I probably have given over 100 talks at universities and stuff across the country about the film. And they'd always say, okay, we're going to screen it at 7. And I was like, okay, I'll be there about 8.30. And I didn't watch it. And then eventually after Al Jazeera English started and my show was on and we were, I think, nominated for an Emmy or something, I was in New York with Paige, my wife, and I was at a hotel and I put on my tux and she was getting ready. And it came on like the Sundance channel in my hotel room. And I just sat there and watched it for the first time, like kind of all the way through since I think I did the DVD uh, commentary. It was the only other time. Even that time was kind of stopped and it was weird. So I just watched it one time by myself in there. And then I went to the Emmy thing. And, um, and I haven't watched it since, really. It's just, I don't know, you guys see a movie and I see a lot of personal memories. Like I, I know all those guys. And every time the camera stops, my mind continues in that scene. And uh, I thought... All, I thought after all these years it'd be a lot easier, but it actually was pretty emotional. I want to thank Josh Rushing and producer Rosa Del Varela for joining me at Stranger Than Fiction. You can watch Control Room on DVD or on Hulu. You can find Josh Rushing's show, Fault Lines, on Al Jazeera English and on YouTube. Jahan Nujaim went on to direct the Oscar-nominated documentary, The Square, about the Arab Spring in Egypt's Tahrir Square. You can find that film on Netflix. If you're in New York City, please come to our weekly screening series, Stranger Than Fiction. Every Tuesday, we show a documentary at the IFC Center, followed by a conversation with the filmmaker or other special guest. Thanks to our team, series producer, Sarah Modo sound mixer, Tom Micah, and web designer, Cross Strategy. Our theme music is composed by Andre Williams, and our executive producer is Rafaela Nehausen. I'm Tom Powers. You can follow me on Twitter at T-H-O-M Powers. Pure Nonfiction is distributed by the TIFF Podcast Network. You can read our show notes, learn about live events, and sign up for our newsletter at Pure nonfiction.net.